Amen. First Samuel chapter 15, entitled One Last Chance. I'm going to split the chapter. We'll get the second part next session, Lord willing, because there's so much here. There's so much benefit to considering the life of Saul right before we get to the life of David, which begins next chapter. And as bad as Saul is, he's not the worst person in the Bible. I mean, consider the Levite in Judges 19 and 20 who hacked up his concubine and sent parts around. I mean, they're just sick. There's Haman, Ahab, Jezebel, Athaliah, Antiochus Epiphanes, and Daniel gets into the prophecies concerning him. Herod the Great, the slaughter of the innocents at Bethlehem. So there are words, characters, uh, just that we have so much about Saul. We get to sort of stew in his wickedness. And there's also Absalom. They have a lot about him coming up. So there are others, lest you think that Saul is being picked on. If there were a single characteristic about this man that makes him so foul, it is that self-serving pride. It, it turned a cherubim into a, a, a devil. Lucifer became Satan. The self-enthronement is what uh, this self-serving pride is all about. Self-enthronement at the exclusion or the belittling of others. Everybody else is smaller. I am bigger. And Saul had a big case of this. And it is good for us to consider his life lest we make such a foolish mistake. Now, no one decent would root for this man's failure. However, when we are faced with his violent determinations, violent determinations to hurt others, we have to make a choice. It becomes near criminal to pity him too much. In fact, God had to deal with Samuel just a little bit on that. All Samuel needed was a nudge, but he needed the nudge. Look at 1 Samuel 16, chapter 16, verse 1. Now Yahweh said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Samuel, come on, we get past this. It's a fact. You've got to accept it. It's distasteful, but you have to accept it. Misplaced pity is unjust. It becomes, it can become sin. Even Samuel, again, with all of his emotions that were invested in this man, he had to face facts and trust God. He had to submit to what God was doing with such a character as Saul. He was not telling Samuel, you have to hate Saul now. He's just saying you're, you're spending energy where it does not need to be spent. There are bigger and better places for you to invest yourself, and I am sending you there. And so now we look at verse 1. Samuel also said to Saul, Yahweh sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of Yahweh. Now, let's not lose sight of the title, One Last Chance, because that is what Saul is getting. We're just happening to, we're reading it after the fact. But when these events were taking place, this was his last chance. God had already rejected him and said, oh, you know, give you one more chance. Now, God knew what he would do. But God did not cause it. And he lays it out for all the generations who would avail themselves of what's recorded in Scripture to benefit from the record. These events are several years after Jonathan led the victory against the Philistines and dipped his spear in the honey and his father wanted to kill them. Well, what happened after that? Well, Saul went on these exploits. Look at chapter 14, verse 47 and 8. Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them, and he gathered an army and attacked them. So there we see he's, he's moved on. He's building his army. 
He's doing what he's supposed to do as a king, but in his heart, still, there are things that have not been addressed. And God is looking at this, and he's saying to us, I'm looking at Saul do these things. He's doing the right thing. I'm going to give him a chance to redeem himself. And so during those years, he increased the size of his army. Abner, his uncle, is put as commander of his army. He's behaving as a king. Together, they waged a very successful campaign against those who would harm them. But the big test was coming. Because, see, in all those battles, Saul was allowed to do as all the kings of the nations would do. When they defeated a people, they would plunder them. But God was now going to call Saul to be an instrument of judgment, not only protection for his people, but now an instrument of judgment for God. And plunder was not going to be a part of it. So all the world would know that this was a judgment from God himself on the Amalekite people. It was not a routine war. And the spoils, hands off, they were not to be taken. The people of God were not to benefit themselves from the plunder of those who had been judged. This was a mission. It was their duty. And Saul really didn't care. The Amalekites, these were not good people. And God is saying, he will say throughout, that the monarchy, the the rule over Israel belongs to God, not to Saul. And not to Samuel. And though he is giving specific orders here in this first verse through Samuel to Saul. Just like we have the scripture from the prophets, from the apostles. Incidentally, the New Testament says the foundation of Christianity is built on Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, foundation of the apostles and prophets, not the prophets and the apostles. The apostles first. And then the prophets, the New Testament prophets, Old Testament prophets. So that we understand that we are ministers of the New Testament, a new covenant. We're not under the old covenant. There are elements of it that have been retained and carry over, and there are elements of it that have been jettisoned. We're not using them. And so here, years earlier, Saul, where he failed to obey God in that he did not wait for Samuel to come to make the blood sacrifices before battle. He took it upon himself, and of course he dismissed the priest, and he just asserted the flesh over the spirit. And for that, through the prophet Samuel, he was told that the kingdom would be taken from him, that there would be no dynasty. Samuel said, your, your, your kingdom, your children would have followed you on the throne. You had such an opportunity, and you blew it because you'd put God second. You put yourself first. And so, God, of course, makes note, I'm going to give him another shot. And we're reading about it in this 15th chapter, knowing he's going to blow it. But our eyes are not so much on Saul, they're on God. This last chance to save his throne. And it is not unlike God to give those who deserve no more chances one more chance. And sometimes... We prevail. Sometimes we do well. We take that second chance and we, we run with it. But it's up to the individual. It's not automatic. And while God may know, we have a say-so in what he knows in this sense. I think sometimes God gives people a second chance to the irritation of, uh, of those who want to see no more chances given. I don't want Saul to have another chance. The guy's a creep. Well, he was, actually wasn't that bad yet. But just knowing where it's going, he said, I don't want to see him have a chance. But he gets one. He says here in verse 1, Now therefore heed the voice of the words of Yahweh. A serious, wasted encouragement. I do not want to be the recipient of wasted encouragements. But you've got to fight in Christianity. You don't have a choice. If you want to do well, if you want to serve God, you can, you can put yourself first, which is the lesson, again, of these evil characters in scriptures, that they put themselves ahead of God. They were more interested in pleasing themselves than pleasing God. It's very basic. It's very fundamental. It's not complicated. You do not need a degree from Yale or Harvard or anywhere else to understand 
that the Christian life is about obedience to God, pleasing God as best we can with what we have, and not ourselves first. And the flesh says, we'll see about that. And then the fight is on. And that's why the, the gate is straight and it's narrow. You have to squeeze through it. And here he gets his chance. Not only does he get the chance, he gets the great prophet Samuel warning him. And what's Saul going to do with this chance? He's not going to listen. He's going to blame others for not listening. When it is all him. The cause of Saul's error was Saul and no one else. Those who are in hell have no one to blame but themselves. How God sorts it out and arrives at that, sometimes is clear as a bell. Other times, it's not. But he is God and not applying for the job. And he's not a rookie at being God, never has been. He started off not as an amateur God, but fully perfect. And we rejoice in that. That's why we love him so much. Not only why, not only the beauty of who he is that attracts us to God, but where we're going in God. The heaven that awaits us. If it weren't true, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. How amazing is that? Can you ever forget that verse once you've read it? Or you might lose sight of it, but once someone brings it up, you don't say, well, I didn't know that was in the Bible. You know, instantly that was, I read that, I heard that before. Yet he goes to prepare a place for us, and if it weren't true, he would not have teased us with it. And there are so many things that make us love God. There's no single thing, there's no single reason why we love God, yet in in a single moment we can love him. We can see enough. We can see manifold reasons why he is so beautiful. And then the test. And there really, in this creation, there's no love without test, without a test to prove that love. And that's why we go through so much junk. The angels were tested, and a third of them failed. In verse 2 now, thus says Yahweh of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Lord of hosts, he is the commander in heaven and on earth. That is what that means. He commands the angels and he commands his people and his creation. And so now he's moving in judgment on Amalek, the divine prerogative. He judges both now in this life when he wants to and he judges after this life. God did not forget or dismiss this savage people's behavior. And they had been savage and cowardly for a long time. And to the very time, at the very moment that Samuel is giving Saul these orders, they are still savage. They are still cowardly. They are still evil. When we get further along, I think it's verse 18, God will say there, these are sinners. And there's an emphasis there. We were all sinners, yes. But there's there's a particular that God is pointing out concerning the descendants of Amalek. They they are descendants of Esau. Esau felt that spiritual things were secondary, physical things were primary. That's the reverse of Jacob's view. In spite of Jacob's issues, and he had some big ones, he still grasped the idea of God being superior to to the things in this life. Amalek, as we're told in Deuteronomy 25... Attacking the Jews from behind, showing their cowardice, picking off the weak for no reason. They had no benefit to this. They could have just left the Jews alone, but they did not. So Joshua engages them on the battlefield. You know the story. Moses is holding his arms up praying, and Aaron and a man named Hur are holding his arms up, and they prevail. That was against the Amalekites. They had to be dealt with then, but not fully. There condition was irreconcilable. Their doom was fixed. God brings it out not only in Exodus and Deuteronomy through his prophet Moses, but he also employs Balaam to pronounce the judgments on them in Numbers 24. And so the concept of justice, which does not exist in the animal kingdom, a fish will not give you a dissertation on justice. 
Uh, and not, no, no other creature, humans. This is for those who are made in the image of God. We understand justice, the concept thereof. And we feel violated when justice is trampled upon. We want to see people going to jail. There'd be nobody left in Washington if that were exercised. But, well, there'd be a few. Anyway, men have imperfect ideas of justice men without God, and therefore they have imperfect justice. But we submit to God. When he says, I'm going to deal with Amalek, we don't say, oh, come on, that's so mean, you're so harsh. We say, aye, aye, sir. And we are off executing the order. In fact, we repeat the order. You know, it's redundancy to make sure you've got it. Verse 3, now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all they have, And do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Oh, this is real. This is not something that's just, you know, oh, God is so harsh. The Lord is saying in this verse, if I've got to kill the wickedness in its earliest stages to prevent them from killing the righteous in their earliest stages, then so be it. It's their choice. Yeah, the Amalekites were aggressive, they were sneaky, and they were deadly, and they would have wiped the Jews off the planet if they could. And to this day, at the time that these events were taking place, they were still launching raids on the Jews. They were doing this to their people. When we get to verse 33, next session, Samuel will say to Agag, their king, the king of this city that they're going to attack, as your sword made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And then what does Samuel do? He hacks him to death. Now, that is not New Covenant. You see, the the, the importance of understanding New Covenant, Old Covenant. We are are to defend ourselves, but we are not to go and launch aggressive actions in the interest of whatever we think is right. We can uphold civil laws, but we are not to be vigilantes under the throne of God. Judgment, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. That's what this was. It's very simple. And, and we'll, we'll kind of break this down because, you know, there are those people that just think they're more merciful than God, and they are not. If you think you're more merciful than God, you're either lying or stupid. And, and that's it. Be- and if you're lying, it's because you don't believe God. He is sovereign. He is perfect in all his ways, even in this cursed world. Because he does not lift the curse at the snap of his fingers does not mean he's somehow imperfect. He is free to let it run its course for his purposes because his purposes are perfect. And by faith, we accept that. That's the whole chapter of 11 in Hebrews. By faith, they understood enough about God to keep pushing forward towards the throne of God, no matter what. That's the whole story of of Hebrews chapter 11. And that's the story of our lives, too. I don't get it. I don't like it. You are God. I worship you. And that's enough. Well, the tragedy of executing judgment on the Amalekites is not so much that this ethnic group would be removed from the face of the earth. The tragedy is that they were not fit to continue to be on the face of the earth in God's eyes. How come no one sees that? How come no one says, poor God, why does God get saddled with these people? Why does the people of God, why are they put in jeopardy because these people are allowed to exist? Well, here's the case where God says, I'm going to do something about it. And there are some who protest. Now, in Revelation, we read that there are people in heaven from every tongue. I would have no objection to someone in their theology saying, you see these infants that were slaughtered here? You'll see them in heaven. I would not object to that. The adults... Who chose wickedness over righteousness? Another story. God will always do right, whether we see it or not. We will, those who believe. And ultimately, we get to heaven and we'll see it. I think, well, well, we see the righteous in heaven and there's silence in heaven for about an hour because we're just in shock. I can't believe I'm here. Really, I can't believe you're here. (laughs) And that would be a wonderful thing. That he does it all right. Not... Well, it's all right. I mean, it is completely correct. Well, he works through human means, like it or not. He calls us into fellowship with himself. What an honor. 
we find it sometimes as a drag. Why do I got to do your dirty work, Lord? (laughs) Don't be careful if you're going to say that. You might, the thought might flash across your mind, but you don't have to embrace it. So God uses us in fellowship with him so that his will flows through us, through sinners. What a smack in Satan's face. I'm going to use these, uh, this motley crew to do you in. The whole story of Job. And it would cost Job, but God pulled it off. He will multiply the bread, but he will use human hands to distribute the bread. What an honor. You know, when Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish, we don't read about him eating. We read about him feeding everyone else, even his disciples. He raises the dead, but men have to roll the stone away and have to take the grave clothes off of Lazarus to complete the miracle. He still does it this way. He saves this persecutor named Saul of Tarsus through the words of his soon-to-be bloody martyred Stephen. And he makes a short little saying in Revelation. He says, Antipas, my faithful witness. Just that, that's all he gets, my faithful martyr. Just that, sure, that's it. I'd take that. Could you imagine your name, I mean, not just the name, but you being mentioned in the Bible as a hero? Uh, well, you might not get to be mentioned in the Bible as a hero, but you get to be mentioned in heaven as one when the Lord says, enter in. Well done. So God is always on the lookout for useful people. However, to be useful to God so that he can develop you and dispatch you involves quite a few things over a long period of time. Sometimes it's just waiting, feeling like you're being passed over. You know the song, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior, while another's out calling, Do not pass me by. If you're not serving God, that should be an ambition. How do you want to use me? And don't go thinking, well, you're making breakfast, God's using you. I mean, you know, what do you do that? The house of God is the primary or the platform for serving God. It is not the only place, but it is, in many ways, the most excellent. It is his house. It is blood bought. And the blood that bought it is pure. It's not animal blood. It's not human blood. It's the son of God. And so there is Isaiah wondering, scratching his head, I'm a prophet, but how is God going to use me? What good is being a prophet if I'm not sent? How shall they hear? How shall they believe if they don't hear? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. And this is when Isaiah, of course, saw the throne of God and the Lord on it. The train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah having this vision after King Uzziah died. King Uzziah was on the throne 52 years. He was a good king. To have him drop dead like that left an incredible void. What's going to happen to us now? God gives the prophet a vision. And in the midst of that vision, he says, Also, I heard the voice of the Lord, Adonai, saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And, of course, his instructions were, go preach to these people how, knuckle, how much of a knucklehead they are. Like, no, no, I want to preach on love. I want to preach on the glory of the kingdom. I mean, every time I look for a topical message, my first stop is the throne. I want to preach on good things. And then God pushes me over. This is, that, look, that stuff, they know these things. I need you to preach what they've lost sight of. And I don't know what that is until, it, 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 no pastor does if he's seeking God's word. Until he gets it from the scripture. It should be the same with you if you're preaching to people out in the world. You don't know what to say to them until God gives it to you. At least not in power and force. Second Chronicles 16 verse 9. For the eyes of Yahweh run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those who, whose heart is loyal to him. We can have loyal hearts in spite of our stumblings, our shortcomings, our sins, our failures. It doesn't make us disloyal to him in and of themselves. There's more to it. And Saul, he reveals to us what it is to actually be a flagrant sinner. As opposed to David, who also stumbled but was never careless. Caught up, entangled. Who is the last human being named in the Bible? David. Oh, man, what an honor. 
you know, not Moses. I'm not, not as a competition, but how much truth and theology is built into just that. David gets to be the last human being mentioned in God's closed canon of Scripture. Well, he says here in verse, we're only up to verse 2. We're not, yeah, we are. Verse 3. Oh, whoa, whew, I thought it was 2. <laughs> he continues, but kill both man and woman, infant, nursing, child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. It's difficult to even read this. But who can tell, who is prepared to stand up and say that they know what havoc, well, let me put it this way, what havoc did God stop from taking place by addressing the, these people as a people? How much more damage? Would they have morphed into a superpower like the Assyrians? And God knew it, and so he cuts it off. One survivor, one survivor, Alone, Haman, 500 years later, will come along and almost wipe the Jewish people out. And not that he was the only survivor, but he is held up as the poster boy. For if Saul listened to God's commandment through Samuel, there would have been no Haman. The Jews in, in Persia would not have had to have gone through that whole experience. I mean, we get upset when we see laws erode from our Constitution. Imagine an edict put out that anybody who wants to kill the Jew can kill the Jew. All because of this, the doofus king. So these people in that part of the world at this time, and even to this day in many places, they have a thirst for retaliation with revenge, with zeal. It's deeply ingrained in them. At this time, you couldn't just go into a village and, and say, there, that's for attacking us, without knowing they're going to come back again and, and be more vicious than the first time. And this King Agag, who he's going to spare, he is an Amalekite, and thus Haman was an Agite. He was, it's a derogatory term in the Jewish mind. He was from the, from the people of Agag, this Amalekite king that Saul spared. So which, which mother here, if you had a rattlesnake loose in your backyard, a baby one, you know, cute with a little ribbon on his head, would you spare that rattlesnake knowing that if you let it live and grow bigger, it's going to be more of a threat or are you going to take it out? If you had a black widow in the playpen, you're going to leave it there because it's, oh, it's just a baby. No, you're not. And that's what's going into what is taking place. So we, we have the ability, we have the aptitude to see what God is doing here rather than get caught up in misguided pity that actually causes more suffering than God's way. In executing this command, the Israelites were God's instrument of judgment on Amalek, as I said earlier, and often we feel compelled to question God, like John the Baptist. Are you the one or do we seek another? Like Ananias, Lord, do you know about this guy? So, I mean, Ananias, come on. How did you get picked? <laughs> How did you get picked to go be my messenger to this servant who, incidentally, I'm going to show how much he has to suffer serving me? This dramatic experience Paul had about stepping into Europe, and he gets to Europe through Philippi, where he takes a beating, and, and then he goes on to Thessalonica. With that dramatic experience, had to flash back. He had the vision of the Macedonians saying, come on over. Well, he had to remember that, I'm sure, as he marched through Europe, taking these beatings and these frightful, uh, you know, being stalked and hounded from city to city. He couldn't even stay in Berea. They chased him out of there. He gets to Athens, he's concerned about the Thessalonians, who in those two little letters, he's in, in Thessalonica just maybe three weeks or so, in those two little letters is so much doctrine, end-time doctrine, present, I mean, just the person of Christ is so much in First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, don't dismiss them. Don't think, oh, it's just, you know, difficult to pronounce, and so there must not be anything there. In verse 4, we've, we've got to get to verse, I think, 12 or 11, so if you could hurry up and listen, we'll get there. Verse 4, So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, Telaim 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. 
This is an invasion force, not just a standing army. I don't remember the ratio. I think it's if you're going to invade, you have to have ten times the amount of the defenders, modern military doctrine. Uh, but God is, he is Lord over the nations. And Egypt found that out. Nineveh found that out. Not only is he Lord, he is also merciful towards the nations. That's why he sent Jonah to Nineveh. And he's merciful to hard-headed Jonah. Jonah's one of the greatest prophets in the Bible. Well, actually, I would say that about all of them, because I'm going to meet them one day. And I want them to know I said nice things. But, I mean, here's a man that just ruined his own ministry, and then he doesn't brag about it. He exposes himself and says, listen, I don't know what came over me. I know it came over me. Racism came over me. And he goes and he does his job, and the Ninevites are, are saved. But then Nahum comes along and says, you blew it. Now judgment's going to come upon you. The Ninevites were not the wicked people they became till after Jonah went through. And then they became savage, and God again sent Nahum to... And even when Nahum preached about them, that was their opportunity. Well, Babylon, Greece, Rome, Spain, France, Germany... When you get to Isaiah and Jeremiah and they start talking about the nations, it's kind of boring reading to us. But what they're saying is God rules the earth. He's not just God of the Jew. He's God of the planet. And there are a lot of people in this country fighting to keep it from going the same route as all these other ones had gone. Once superpowers and now not. Uh, we are watching how fast the planet capitulates to one edict, for example, to just wear a mask. You wait till the edict comes to get the chip. And his number will be 6666. And uh, we, we, the righteous won't be here for that. I'm sorry. If you think that the church, the, the, the present church, is going to go through the tribulation, your theology is dented. The, the converts, tribulation converts, will go through the tribulation. And they will be solid converts. And they will be executed for their faith. But the Lord says very clearly that we are to comfort each other, knowing that we will be taken out of here in the twinkle of an eye, that uh, because you held to my word, I will spare you from judgment, and all this stuff about, well, you're going to go through part of it, but not all of it. That's not what the Bible says. And the New Testament says nothing like that. In fact, we have not only New Testament theology straight out, but we have it illustrated in the Old Testament. God could not pour down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah until he got Lot out of there. And that's just a, one of many. Where was, where was Daniel when the three nice Jewish boys went through the furnace? The three nice Jewish boys in type or Israel going through the furnace, and Daniel is the righteous being removed from such an experience. So I'm just saying that because I get the uh, idea that this old theology is creeping back in. There's a lot of dumb theology coming to us from a lot of Christians going to colleges and universities. And they're promoting these teachers over them who are coming, who are excellent book writers. Uh, but they're departing from the basics of Scripture. And you should be ready for them. And those that uh, follow are drinking this Kool-Aid, you should say, that's not what Scripture says, and here's why. I was going to preach on it last Sunday. I was going to do a lot of things last Sunday. <laughs> I was going to paint the town plaid. Just ran out of paint. Anyway... You know, I hope, I would want a pastor whose head is always running. Lord, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to say? What do you want me to say? Okay, bedtime. Talk to you tomorrow. All right. I went off somewhere. We still got to get through this. Verse 5, and Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. You see that singular A city, major settlement of the Amalekites. There were others. Uh, he was supposed to wipe them out. This one, the other ones too. And he launches a substantial campaign. It's not a little, he doesn't just knock the city down and that's it. But he still falls short. He was almost but not quite. Verse 6, then Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. Will you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came out of the out of Egypt, so the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Sort of ob uh, obligated to uh, make this distinction. The Kenites were descendants of Jethro. They were an offshoot of the Midianites. 
uh, Jethro. His sister's name was Ellie Mae. And <laughs> uh, anyway, he tells them, look, you better get out of town or else you're going to get judged with him. So that was a noble act. See, he had what he needed. It wasn't that Saul was handicapped. He had what he needed, and it flashes out, and it goes away. It doesn't come back again. Verse 7, And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. From one end of the country to the other, this, this is a campaign lasting days, if not weeks. It's over 100 miles. More when you count you know, all of the side. There's a lot of work going on here. I mean, how many hundreds of, what did he have, uh, how many hundred thousand men with him to launch this campaign? You've got to feed them, got to water them, got to secure them, you've got to move them. This is uh, big league stuff. This is not, you know, a, a village brawl. Verse 7, verse 8, uh, he also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. And right there at verse 8 is the dramatic music in the movie that alerts the watcher or to the viewer that something went wrong and went very wrong. You know, and you're seeing a movie about, you know, I don't know, a murder mystery, and they show you a paper clip. Well, evidently that paper clip's going to work into the story, or else they wouldn't zoom in on it. And here it is a zooming in on Saul sparing the life of the king of the Malachites. Another example of his incomplete obedience. What a scary word. We all have incomplete obedience. That's why we need the Savior. But his was systematic, and he had no intention of fixing it. And the far-reaching implications that come along with this is here's a man that is encouraged, that is given a second chance, a, a, a he had a penultimate last chance when he offered the sacrifices. He gets another chance, and this is what he does with it. And as I mentioned, five centuries later, the, the Agite, Hanan, is going to attempt to exterminate the Jewish race, and he almost pulls it off. Amalek is a type of the flesh. We should not pass by this. And Saul was to utterly defeat the flesh as we are. We're not to sign a treaty with the flesh. We are to avoid that. It's very difficult. I'm not trying to oversimplify it. But in refusing uh, to deal with the flesh, he compromised himself, and, and that's going to cause great problems. It says, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. So it was a bloodbath, and he was, again, partially obedient. The Amalekites will show up again in chapter 27, in chapter 30. Saul will be finally executed, botched, uh, you know, he attempted to kill himself, to spare himself from being tortured by the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. And so he has an Amalekite finish him off. And that is very symbolic. Uh, the Amalekites are connected to Saul's uh, blatant disregard for the care that Samuel and God showed him. Verse 9, But Saul and the people of, uh, pardon me, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. Well, there it is. There's the indictment. Saul and the people spared. Saul, his word was law. When he said, we killed the man that ate this day, the people were lining up to do it until they found, the, of course, the details that there was an innocent man. It was not somebody in the, amongst the tribes that just disobeyed Saul. And uh, here, the people are not protesting, and that's why they are included. They are accomplices. No one said, we're supposed to finish them off. Well, you say, maybe they didn't know. Details to get caught up in. Well, what we do know is the king knew. And that's all we need to know. Um, Haman, again, an Amalekite, directly linked to Agag, 
Mordecai, who will deal with Haman, is directly linked to the tribe of Benjamin, directly linked to Kish, Saul's father, making the book of Esther a rematch between Saul and God's people and Amalek. Unfinished business. And, of course, Mordecai in play. I'm not bowing to that guy. He's a punk. (laughs) It's like, Mordecai, you just endangered all your people. Yeah, I didn't see that coming, but I'm still not bowing down to him. And it was a magnificent story. Mordecai is one of the great heroes of the Bible. I mean, his words to Esther, fine, Esther, let me tell you, it's like this, sister. You either step up or somebody else is going to do it and you will lose your thunder. And Esther, smart gal that she was, she was not only a woman of great pulchritude, she was also smart. And she said, "Mm, yep, I'm helping. Even if I die, I'm helping. What a woman and what a man. Uh, Continuing here in verse 9, and all that was good, they were unwilling to utterly destroy. And there it is. This is the will. They chose not to do what they were supposed to do. I would not be surprised if Saul stood in front of the army commanders before they went out. And this is the mandate I have from God through Samuel the prophet. We are to destroy everything and not take any plunder. And then he goes and sees the plunder. You no, know, this is good stuff. It'd be a shame. To, I mean, look at that bull. That's a prize. Let's, uh, let's keep it. And this is the selective obedience, which is disobedience. And so he, he, while he's plundering, the Amalekites are escaping. I mean, this isn't like they just go and see, oh, there's a couple of sheep, let's take them. This is, these are herds, enough to feed the city. And, and so they're taking their troops to, you know, herd cattle and sheep instead of chasing the enemy. And this characterizes Saul for the rest of his Reign as king. What is he doing? Instead of dealing with the Philistines, he's chasing David. Satan is so subtle. He just gets you off track a little bit, and then he keeps you there. Even as I'm speaking, somebody may be sitting here or watching online off track. And it's the devil doing it. Because maybe there's something in God's word, even if there's not in the comments that I'm making, that is just for you. That could be a turning point. You say, well, I get bored. Do you talk to God about that? Because, uh, and then what do you do to work? Listen, bored, getting bored is part of life. But boredom is no joke. It is a serious force. And uh, some of us, we, you know, you know, you stay busy. You stay in motion. A moving target's harder to hit than a stationary one. And you stay busy. And those who succumb and just don't get rolling, uh, you make yourself uh, an easier target. Well, all that was good. And we're unwilling to destroy. So the motive is covetedness. This was the fall of Achan. Achan said, I saw it. Incidentally, where was Achan? He stole garments and gold. Where was he going to wear those clothes? I mean, like, is that a, a garment from Jericho? Yes, you like it? You better not let Phineas see it. He'll spear you. Uh, where was he going to spend the gold? Well, there was, you know, actually a Dollar General just down the road. And, and uh, you know, just you, it madness, sin. It just makes us crazy. It makes fools out of us. And, you know, that's why we are so against it. Well, anyway, uh, Saul stacked up the victories against these surrounding pagans. And while he was doing these victories that I mentioned earlier against the, you know, Edom and Zobah and all these other ones, they were plundering those people. But so they were used to this. They were ready for this. It was part of the spoil of war. But this was to be an exception because he was God's instrument. This was his last chance as God's instrument. Anybody could be a general and go and wipe out a village or a city, but not anybody could submit to this clear word of God in the face of these temptations. Joshua, this is what he told the people when they went to Jericho. He said, And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. So the moment God commanded that all was to be destroyed was the moment that anything salvaged became accursed. 
And Saul said, well, you know, maybe. He cherry-picked God's word. I'll take this commandment. So, so uh, I'm, I was watching a, a documentary on a, a hitman. Not that I've got any ideas of moonlighting. <laughs> but uh, this person, he's, he's, I, I think he's still alive, serving time in, in Trenton, New Jersey. He will be for the rest of his life. He killed over 100 people. He says it's more than 200. Well, as he's talking about his murder, so the, you see him, the first interview, and he's a little, you can see he's disturbed by some of the things he's done, but he's not going to admit it. By the second interview, he's a little bit more cocky. By the third, he's into what he did. And he's an older man. He's much older by the third interview. And so you see this progression of evil. What happens when you don't nip this in the bud, when you let it run? The flesh will not be merciful to you. So my point is, uh, he's, he's, he's in this interview, and at one moment he mentions that uh, he had to make a hit on a homosexual. And he dressed, he had to say, well, so I dressed up like one of them, and oh, I don't want to offend them. Well, you killed 200 people, and you were worried about offending gay people? Are you sick? Oh, yeah, he's demon-possessed. His whole thing is messed up. His whole way of thinking. Talk about having an unclean spirit. He's got like a stadium's worth. And uh, those kind of people, you know, you're glad they're locked up because they are irretrievable. Now, what does that have to do with what we're talking about here? I completely forgot. Oh, well, maybe to come back and, and, and we'll all be blessed or to stay away and then I'll just be angry at myself. So <laughs> he, he viewed God's word as, again, a hindrance. So, you know, you could... It was okay to disobey God in Saul's mind. You just couldn't disobey Saul. And we covered that last section with his son, Jonathan, who dipped his spear in honey. And oh, let's kill him. But what about you, Saul? You disobeyed a clear commandment of God. Yeah, but I have good reasons why I disobeyed. And this selective obedience is deadly stuff. Oh, the cherry picking. That's what I was saying. So here you have a serial killer who's, you know, the, the, the Ten Commandments mean nothing to him. But yet he doesn't want to offend a certain group. So he's cherry-picking what is it's just twisted. It's, it's messed up. And I'm not saying uh, Saul became... Anyway, I, we'll, we'll leave some of that for the story to come. We've, we've got to finish this. So not an uncommon practice to pick the facts we like and discard the facts we don't like. God says it's dishonorable, it's shameful, it's lying. You may not like them. You may want to avoid them. But you cannot cherry-pick. You cannot say, I'll take the first Ten Commandments, but I'll throw the others away. Unless God, well, God, of course, phased out the Sabbath, and we're glad he did, or else we would not have air conditioning and heating on Saturdays. So, uh, the battle against the flesh, Proverbs 29, 1, He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. And that was Saul. In other words, if you keep getting after somebody... Look, we asked you not to do that. They do it again. Well, look, can you please stop? And they do it again. Until finally, this, this, it's, it's very contentious now. And that's what the proverb says. You, you constantly rebuke somebody, they get stiff-necked on you. They have no right to be this way. And it is to their own destruction. And everybody else's annoyance, but, uh, you know, that's, that's precisely what happened to Saul. So the man outside of Jesus Christ lives to please himself. These are the lessons. And the one who lives to please themselves is rarely pleased. Saul wasn't a happy guy. I mean, we don't see him playing the flute. I mean, don't you associate playing the flute with joy? All right, never mind. Yankee Doodle's a fun song. Anyway, that's a recorder. Uh, so the rhythm, shot. Why? Because when God moved in rhythm, Paul, uh, Saul... Tugged and jerked in the opposite direction. So it says here at the bottom of verse 9, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. Um, how, how insulting to God. You said destroy it all. We took what we wanted and the junk we threw out. Here you go. We obeyed you. That, and that's precisely what he's going to tell Samuel. Wait till we get to that next session. I did everything you said to do. Well, the people may be. <laughs> Man. Verse 11. I greatly regret... This is now God speaking. Did I? Uh, no, verse 10, sorry. Now the word of Yahweh came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set 
up Saul, verse 11, as king, for he has turned back from following me and has performed, uh, has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to Yahweh all night. Verse 10, where it says the word of the Lord came to Samuel. The look on his face when he, he's going to get two of them. He's going to, this one here, when God says, I, I'm, I'm just, I wasted my time with Saul. And then at the end, he'll get another one when they say, Saul's out building a monument for himself, Samuel. I mean, the look on Samuel's face when he heard that, knowing that God had said this already about him. So, uh, God would not talk to Saul at this point. He talks to Samuel. And he says in verse 11, this is anthropomorphic. In other words, he's assigning, you're taking a human characteristic uh, of regret and your God is taking that characteristic and saying, listen, so you understand where I'm going with this. I am completely dissatisfied with how this turned out. There was no other way to do it. I did not make a mistake. It was not an oversight. I knew it would get here. But that does not lessen the intensity of my regret and disappointment at how things happened. And that's what God is saying here. It's not what I wanted, not what I had in mind. And because it turned out this way, I'm pretty upset. A scorching word of divine displeasure. And the dread of this, Saul never really cared about. He found out about this just unfazed by it. In fact, he buckled down. He, you know, he stiffened his neck. He was constantly rebuked. It says, for he turned his back from following me. God says that. That's rebellion. He rebelled against me. Instead of being a man after my own heart, he was against my heart. As the kings of the other nations. That's how he performed. Remember the Jews said, we want a king like the other nations? Well, you got one. And it continues, and has not performed my commandments. Blunt, that is to the point. Spiritual negligence. God's word is unimportant. Saul's pleasures is more important. And it grieved Samuel. The Hebrew word there for grieved is really, it burned him. Uh, it made him very, very angry with displeasure. That identical Greek word is found in Jonah 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And here it comes. He became angry. He was exceedingly angry. So there's an, it's emphatic. There's an intensity. Uh, Samuel was angry at Saul. He was angry at the outcome. And he was broken hearted. You say, well, why did the translators then, you know, do this interpretive translation and use the word grieved instead of angry? Well, you probably go down to verse 15 which they probably did, to try to capture where, where Samuel's head was. And there at verse 35, sorry, I said 15, 1 Samuel 15, verse 35, and Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and Yahweh regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So there it is reinforced, and there the translators likely giving them the benefit of the doubt, because it's a very, a very difficult task to translate accurately, consistently. So many little twists and turns. Anyway, uh, there is there. They say, okay, he's, he's grieved and he's angry at the same time. And they use the dominant emotion of grief to express his anger. Uh, that's my defense of the translator's but uh, that is what is happening. A lot of emotions are flying around because of that. And so Saul, where's Saul? <clears throat> While Samuel is grieved before God, Saul's out skipping around playing hopscotch. He could care less if Samuel is grieved. He doesn't even care that God says, I regret. Imagine God saying that to you. I, I'm sorry that you even had a chance. Oh, man, that's terrifying to even say it. And he cried out to the Lord all night. See how much emotion this man threw into this? I, I read, Dan, you know, Daniel said, I, I, you know, I, I, I fasted, I waited on God, I had no strength. And where did these guys get these emotions? I, I've tried, I can't get there. But I can appreciate them getting there. At least I've got that. And so he cried out all night. I would have said something like, you know, Lord, I never liked him anyway. 
I'm glad he's getting fired. He's bad news for Israel. Are you going to defrock, uh, de- de- defrone him tomorrow? No, he's going to be around a while. But he prayed. Here's Samuel. He was a man of prayer. The, nor- the Lord does not count partial obedience as whole obedience. Not when it's willful like this. There are times where God said to David, it was in your heart, David, and I'm going to accept that. You didn't get to do it, but I'm going to accept it. But this is flagrant. The, Saul, it's not that he refused to do anything that the Lord commanded him to do. He just refused to do all that the Lord commanded him to do. And the, the killer to that is he really didn't care. If he grieved over it, it would have been so much different. We're going to come across other kings as we move through the Chronicles. Who, you know, Manasseh, the one of the worst of all, he repents in the end. He had to get dragged with a hook in his nose to get him to do it, but he repents. Verse 12. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, and he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. So Samuel has to confront Saul, having God speak to him first and tell him what's going on, giving him his instructions. And it was told Samuel, Saul went to Carmel. That is not Carmel uh, by the sea, northern Israel, where you can actually stand on Mount Carmel and you can see the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. You just look that way, you look that way, and there it is. It's nice. And that's where, of course, Elijah had the showdown with the prophets of Baal, This is a Carmel in Hebron, in Judah's territory. But he says, indeed, he set up a monument for himself. So Samuel is looking for Saul. He says, where is he? And he says, well, he went went to build, he went to put himself on a pedestal. He's all about himself. What's he celebrating? Himself. Well, who does he love more than anyone? Himself. (laughs) Who's in second place? Himself. Who's in 80th place? Himself. (laughs) He just loved himself. People were just things to use. He praised himself before going up to praise God. See, Gilgal's where he's going to praise God. But first he stops to make a monument to himself. I've got a good idea. Let's make a statue for my victories over the Amalekites. And it will be a statue of me. Could you imagine? I've always fantasized about having... Big poster pictures in a white suit of me hanging like banners in the church like the communists used to do with Mao and Stalin. Of course, it's insane. I mean, that's what Paul is doing. He's down there. He's right over there at Office Max. I want the poster to be this big. And can, Is that vinyl? Uh, it's just it's, it's the craziest thing. That, and so right on the heels of God's judgment, the historian says, don't forget who this guy is. Don't forget for one second he's self-absorbed. John's Gospel, chapter 4. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And, you know, Absalom will do the same. Absalom's going to put a statue of himself in the Valley of Kings, and he never became king. What is up with that? <laughs> the arrogance. I can't wait until Joab does him in. He's, you know, he's just such a figure that you just want him off, away from everybody. His others, even worse than Absalom, his buddy. Oh, not his, we'll, get to, we'll get to those things. Anyway, uh, this uh, character of Saul. Uh, again, not the worst in Scripture, and I'm closing this up now. Uh, this is the one last chance that he got and he wasted it because he lived for himself. He lived to please himself. And that is a great warning to us from this section of scripture. Watch it. I can tell you, if you serve God and you suffer enough defeats doing what you think is right, you're going to become um, disappointed with God. And at that time, you're going to have to battle through it. Because if you give in, you're going... Satan's not going to be merciful to you. You're going to lose ground. So the best thing the servant can do when it seems like God is just leaving them 
to struggle, the best thing the servant can do is struggle. But if the servant then says, that's it, I'm going to start living for myself, I'm going to please me. You are opening up a door that you're going to regret you opened. It's better to just take your hits and wait, no matter how long it takes. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for letting us look at your word. We thank you for allowing us in the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. Without this salvation... We would not be here subjecting ourselves willfully and delightfully to the things you have to say to us. May you help us live to be obedient, to please you. May you get us all home safely tonight, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.